0: If I meet someone for the first time, I will probably introduce myself something like this. Hi, my name is Keith. And then depending on who that person is, I will either say I'm a church leader who also works part-time as an optician or in a more medical setting, I might say I'm an optician who also leads a church. Now, while both those statements are absolutely true, I will tailor how I describe myself Depending on my audience, which perhaps reveals something about my own insecurities or how maybe I just want people to perceive me. I wonder how you would describe yourself. See, we tend to think of ourselves in terms of what we do or what we have achieved or even by the people that we identify with. But Paul has got a very different answer in verses 21 to 23. And he reminds his readers that a massive change has taken place in their lives when they became Christians. Then he shows them how they are now. And then he tells them how to live up to that challenge. But before we look in a little bit more detail at those verses, I think it's important to anchor them into this whole chapter. Now, the reason, the reason why we preach through whole books of the Bible is to make sure that we do not distort God's Word because just picking random verses sometimes out of context can lead to misunderstanding. So just as Emma did last week, I want to tie this sermon into what we've already heard. You notice an unusual picture behind me. This picture was a wedding present that was given to us by my brother-in-law. And it's it's a picture unlike anything I'd ever seen before. It was was painted with, with brown varnish. There are two people in that picture, but the more you stare at it, the, the more you see it just looks different from different angles it 's almost like a three d view to the to the whole thing and But the most interesting thing for me about this picture was how it was created. It was layers upon layers of just varnish, each one of them was allowed to dry before another layer was lad- added on top. It took hours in fact days, probably weeks and weeks of work that were cleverly and just creatively put together to form this piece of art. In verses 15 to 20, the bit that Emma talked about last week is the backdrop to the verses that we're going to look at today, but it's also also the backdrop to who we are. And Paul begins, he begins by creating this portrait of Jesus. And in a similar way to the painting that I've just shown you, he paints this picture of Jesus by building up layers upon layers of truth. And Paul's purpose in this, in these breathtaking verses, are simply just a declaration of praise. So as we listened to Emma last week, I hope you weren't just sitting here thinking, you know, that's nice. But instead, you were able to stand and you're able to stare and to look and just to be captivated by Jesus. And Paul wants us to understand how great Jesus Christ is, and that, that everything else just peels into insignificance compared to the glory of Jesus. You see, there is no one, in fact, there is nothing better than him. He is the reconciler of everything, but also. It's only when you understand who Jesus is that you will really begin to understand who you are. For a more detailed exploration of these verses, if you haven't, if you weren't here last week, or you haven't listened to the podcast yet, do listen to Emma's podcast. It's online. But just hear some of the highlights. See, Paul begins by painting and he begins by declaring that Christ is over all things. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and what he's saying here is Jesus is the representation of you see when when an image when an image is, is perfect enough it becomes a duplication so Jesus is both the perfect representation of and the duplication of God. Now, I've got, a, I've got a twin brother. Some of you have met him. When we were at school, we were really, really alike. So much so that the teachers really couldn't tell us apart. Actually proved to be very handy some days during our school days. And although we are a lot less identical these days, the truth is we are still very alike. So even now, if you want to know what my brother Colin looks like, without ever meeting him, when he looks a little bit like this, hair's a lot shorter, doesn't wear glasses, should wear glasses, doesn't wear glasses, but sore point, sore point. Anyway, if, if you know what he speaks like, he speaks just like this, so much so that Colin's wife, when she was expecting her fourth child, I was able to ring my mom and say, hey, mom, guess what? It's another boy. And she says, that's great, Colin. I says, look, I'm only joking. It's just Keith here. Got her three times. When, when eventually my brother did phone to, to give the good news that it was indeed another boy, she of course didn't believe him it, it's in a similar way, what Paul is saying here to see what God is like, we must look at jesus he perfectly represents God. So as Paul begins to paint this portrait of Christ, he starts, of course, in Jesus, because in Jesus, the invisible becomes visible. Jesus is not less than God. He is God revealed to us. And Then the next layer that Paul adds is that Christ created all things. See he created everything in heaven and on earth everything that was that we see and everything that we we don't every nation that has ever existed every ruler every king nothing exists without Jesus. Now the gnostics these false teachers that were around in the days of of the colossians they thought that the creator god the god of the old testament was not god but something someone who is hostile to him. This is why Paul insists that God, who created the world, was not a hostile being, but Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, he was there right at the very beginning. Then the third layer that Paul adds in is that Christ is the purpose of all things. Christ created all things, but also we see that all things were created for him. He is the purpose. He is not only the source of creation, he is also the goal of creation. This entire universe was created to be his so that we might worship and enjoy him. You know, the question is asked perhaps more than any other question is: why am I here? What is my purpose in life? What, what, what does this all mean? In fact, the number of self-help books in our libraries, on our book, in our bookshops, on Amazon, of course, other Um, Online providers are available. Um, they're, they're, They're proof of this. But the best answer to this question is found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Puts it like this. What's man's purpose? It actually says, what's man's chief end? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we have been made for him And true joy and true pleasure comes when we live as the people that we are meant to be. That's the goal, that the purpose of each and every one of us is the pursuit of our happiness in God. There's no greater way to glorify him. Jonathan Edwards, he writes this, the soul of every man craves happiness. It's a universal hunger. It's within each and every one of us. And as Paul, as he paints he says, Look at Jesus. He is the purpose of all things. The fourth layer that Paul adds is that Christ is before. All things. And and, and Paul wants to emphasize this eternal nature of Jesus, Jesus being completely God. And such is the mystery of the Godhead, the Trinitarian God, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. There was no before, there will be no after. Jesus exists before he was born. He is the one who is infinitely eternal. Listen, we could spend hours discussing that last statement. I'm thinking about it, and we still end up with the same conclusion that we just don't get it. The reality is that we must stand back in awe and wonder at Jesus, who is God and who is infinitely beyond our understanding. Then the fifth letter Paul adds in, he goes even further with that. He says, Christ sustains all things. Because not only is Jesus the creator and the goal of creation, he is also the one who holds it all together. From the beginning of this world to the end, he is the Par. he is the authority that holds everything that exists. So not only did he make all things, but this universe would collapse without his power holding it all together. In him we live, in him we move, in him we have our being. Jesus Christ is Lord, and in everything, he has the supremacy. And whether you know it or not, whether you even want to acknowledge it or not, he is the supreme Lord of your life. Think about it. If Jesus created all things and holds everything together? Do you you think that he is sufficient to meet every single one of your needs? I think you know the answer. Of course he is. He can do that and so much more. And, And it's out of this background, out of this backdrop, out of this beautiful portrait of Jesus with all of its complex layers that Paul asks us to look at ourselves, and at others. Because into this painting of Jesus, you are added in. And as Paul turns his attention to us, he begins with a description that most of us would want to forget, what we once were. Have a a look around. Perhaps think of the people that you meet regularly what what do you see? For the majority of the people that we meet, they're, they're mostly decent sort of people, aren't they? They're, but as nice as they seem, the Bible speaks rather radically about them and about us because, because Paul is concerned that we remember who we really are. And in case you're any doubt, Paul begins verse 21 with the words, he says, this includes you. Colossians 1.21, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. You must never forget who you were without Jesus. You were his enemy. But at that time, you probably didn't even know it. You you most likely thought, you know what, I've never done really very much to to very much against against God. And, and actually there's possibly people even in this service this morning and you're thinking, I'm not an enemy of God. How dare you say such a thing? I, I don't even give a much thought. And Paul says, it's your mind and it's by your actions that show the true picture of who you are. And so often we want to put on a good act and we, we maybe even say the right thing, but our thoughts and our minds are anything but pure. Because the hardest battles that we fight are the battles that are personal ones to us, are the private things, those things actually nobody else probably even sees. And you can fool your friends. You may even fool yourself, but you do not fool God. You can try as hard as you might, but your natural instinct is towards sin. And the Bible tells us there's there's this... terrible downward spiral of sin that begins so simply. It can even begin by regarding certain sins with, with with horror. So when we do them, when we commit them, we are actually left with regret and with remorse. But as we continue down that path, there comes a time when we become desensitized to them and, and, and we can actually tolerate shameful things without actually feeling anything at all. And we can end up in a place where where we're no longer ashamed of our sins, where actually we may not even be aware of them. But it doesn't even finish there, because there comes a point when God turns away. And the the ultimate conclusion to continuing down this path that overrules our conscience is that we inadvertently train ourselves to do evil, to ignore guilt. The result is a reckless life. It's exactly the same consequence that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, where he writes... They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. We read a similar thing at the end of the second half of Romans chapter one, where Paul says, Sin can get such a grip on a person that he loses his sense of decency and shame. And Paul says, That's who you were. And it's a dark, dark scene it's your attitudes it's it's your values it's your chosen thoughts that stand in such such conflict with jesus and his blunt view of our lives however decent we may think we may be is that before we knew jesus we were wicked we lived in rebellion against god but it is this realization of our sin, this realization of who we really are through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that is the first step to faith in Jesus. And Paul says, remember who we were. Remember who you were. We caused the problem. We were responsible for the separation between ourselves and God. It was our sinful desires. It was our determined opposition towards him. But what was his response? You see, into this darkness, Paul now paints the light of the gospel. And all around this scene, that looks so desperate is the glory of Jesus Colossians 1:22 yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him. What was God's response? Listen, Jesus lays down his life in determined love to make peace with us. The most incredible thing happens. God brings reconciliation. God, in his great mercy, did not, did not leave us as we were. Instead, we have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. And, and reconciliation, it, it means to restore friendly or peaceful relations. Now, please note. You did not reconcile yourself to God. It was God who took the initiative in his love and in his grace. But also you need to realize how incredibly costly this was to achieve. You'll notice here that Paul emphasizes that it was the physical body of Jesus that was nailed to the cross. See, this was to counteract the false teachers who were saying that Jesus did not have a real body or, or even suffer physical pain. You see, Jesus, the Messiah, fully identifies with his people. He represents you and I because he shares our physical, our fleshly body. He was fully man, and he would have suffered the most excruciating pain as he's whipped, as he's beaten, as he's nailed to a cross. But you also need to know that he never sinned, the only perfect man who ever lived. And it was because he was without sin that he's able to take on the consequences of sin. He is able to face death head on. And yet, although Jesus is 100% man, he's also 100% God. So he fully identifies with God the Father. And because of this, God's righteously deals with the sins of the human race through Jesus. N.T. Wright puts it like this, the cross is simply the outworking of this explosive meeting between a holy God and human sin. But what it means is that for those who are members of Christ's body, of which Jesus is the head, verse 18, find that their sins have already been condemned in Jesus. They are reconciled to God. Listen, it was while you were lost, it's while you could do nothing for yourself, while you were still an enemy of God, that Jesus dies for you. And Paul reminds us of the great hope of the gospel. It is astonishing because no charge is brought against us because Christ has already paid all the penalties for your sins. But this picture, this painting does not finish with the death of Jesus because that's not the end. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is the first in the family because because even though sin has done its worst, causing the death of Jesus, Jesus is alive. He is risen. And we, by faith, identifying with his death, now identify and we rejoice in his life. Romans 6, 7, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And listen, Christ is the great reconcilers of all things. Quite simply, there is no other way of salvation. Jesus came to heal that gulf between God and man. It was God who began that whole process. God so loved the world that he sent his son, and his sole purpose in sending Jesus was motivated by love to heal a broken world, to bring all things back to himself. And that includes you this morning. In the second half of verse 22, Paul goes on to explain God's purpose in reconciling us and he reconciles us for our personal holiness. See, God doesn't make peace with us so that we can just continue to be rebels. No, we we are reconciled so that we share in his life and his holiness. And and the impossible has happened. We have been brought into God's presence. And because of Jesus, we stand holy and we stand blameless before God. And the the idea behind this word holiness is that we are set apart or at least being set apart and we are devoted to God. This means that God looks at you this morning And he doesn't see you as you really are, but he sees you as holy, as blameless, as above reproach beyond any accusation. We who deserve to be far away from God are now at peace with him, not through our own efforts, but by faith through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossae, the false teachers were not happy with the simplicity of Christianity. They they actually wanted to turn it into some sort of philosophy. These Gnostics, as they were known, taught that you needed some sort of special knowledge, some special password in order to know God. Conveniently, it was the Gnostics who claimed to know these special passwords. And they were teaching that salvation is about intellectual knowledge rather than faith in Jesus alone. And today, today there are many people who around whose thinking isn't actually that different from what the Gnostics were, were teaching. In fact, even as Christians, we can feel that we need sometimes just to help God out. How often have you thought, if I could just read my Bible more, or if I just prayed a little bit longer, or discovered that sort discovered of, that special thing that could just make my life a little bit better, and tried a little bit harder, that I could then maybe win favor with God. Maybe God would love me more if I did all of those things. Listen, that, that's a false gospel. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jerry Bridges gives a wonderful illustration of God's grace and and actually just our deep, deep need. If you think you can earn your favor with God, if you think just trying harder is going to do something there, it's like like two people attempting to jump across the Grand Canyon. Now, the Grand Canyon's nine miles roughly from one rim to the next. The world record holder for the long jump is 8.95 meters. Now, I'm looking around this morning, and I'm guessing that nobody's going to beat that. Looking at some of you, no offense, not even get close. But what does it matter anyway? What does it matter? Whether you're the world record holder or not, we are all going to end up in exactly the same place if we were to make that jump. Because relative to nine miles, any attempt would be absolutely worthless to try and cross the Grand Canyon. But God has made a way for us to cross the Grand Canyon of our sin. And he didn't stop with eight meters to spare, so that all the good people could make that final little jump. No, he built the bridge all the way across, and on the side of that bridge, he wrote the words, "My grace is enough." You see, grace is not God making up the difference in your life. No, He did it all. And we are desperately dependent him see the cross is proof that there's no length to which God would not go to rescue and to win a person's heart and Jesus is not some lifeless sketch of God no as Paul paints this portrait (laughs) he begins with Jesus guess where he ends (laughs) with Jesus In Jesus, there's nothing left out. He is the full revelation of God and nothing more is necessary. But the wonderful, the amazing joy and wonder of all of this is that you are included in his extravagant artwork. And he is worthy of thanks for such incredible love. And then very quickly, Paul tells us how to live, verse 23. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the gospel news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servants to proclaim it. Now, maybe you are like me, and you probably feel you're a long way away from being holy and blemish free. Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us standing. See, this promise, like many promises in Scripture, holds true if Christians hold on to it. And Jesus has done all that is needed for our salvation. the The only thing that we must do is believe and stand firm in the truth of the gospel. And of course, Paul knows that true Christian faith is the beginning of a life that was given by God and was brought to completion by God. But Paul also knows that genuine faith comes through patient day by day living in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the fact that you that, that we are loved by God does not give the fact that we are loved by God does not give us the righteous to do whatever we want. We're told to stand strong in faith and not to abandon the hope of the gospel. And reconciliation demands that each and every one of us in each and every situation, that we should never lose confidence in God's love. In Jesus Christ, there is an inconquerable hope that never ends. It's amazing that all we need to do it's just hang on to it. And Paul uses an architectural image of a house that is firmly set in its foundations. See, by contrast, the phrase drift away or move away in verse 23 actually can refer to an earthquake. It's no accident, I don't think, that the tide of Colossae was built on a region known for its earthquakes. So as Paul writes, he uses this imagery that the people will understand. But what Paul is saying is that if you are truly saved and that by faith you've built your foundation on the solid foundation, you've built your life on the solid foundation, that is Jesus Christ, you will continue in your faith and that nothing, nothing can move you you've heard the gospel you've trusted in jesus and he reconciles you he saves you by faith but knows what he's not saying he's not saying that we are saved by continuing in our faith he's saying we continue in faith And this proves that we are saved. Listen, you are secure in Jesus Christ and nothing can change that because your salvation, it's not dependent on you. It's all about Jesus. You are in him. You are part of his picture. And nothing can ever remove you from that. And as Paul Brings verse 23 to an end, he he just broadens his view from the church in Colossae to the whole world, and he makes this extraordinary statement, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And, and we, we are called to join Paul as a servant of God to proclaim the good news of Jesus and the living faith that we all share. But with this statement, there should also be a realization you don't need anything more than and you don't need anything less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is all you need. I'm going to invite Rosanna and Nicole to come back. We're going to worship again. I want to challenge you today Do you know Jesus? Do you know what it is to be a follower of Him? And are you you giving everything to him? Listen, Jesus' done it all. He died for your sins. He died in your place. You can know what it is to be blameless before God this morning, at peace with your maker, knowing that when you die, that you will be with him for all of eternity. And this is just a simple prayer of faith. It means accepting that you're a sinner. It means believing that Jesus is the only one who can save you and then come to him, put your trust in him, turn from your sin, repent from your sin, and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. What I'm going to do, and we've, we've done this do this a few times, I'm just going to pray a prayer. And this, we're just going to all pray it together. I know many, most people here are probably Christians already. And that's Wonderful. But I want to pray a prayer of commitment to Jesus, whether it be for the first time, or maybe you've already made a commitment, but just you're just not living how you should be, and you just need to just reaffirm your commitment to him. So we're gonna just just speak out loud so nobody's embarrassed. If you pray this sincerely, and if it's for the first time, why not come and why not come and speak to me about it afterwards or or um, speak to someone that you came with, let's just pray. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I need you. Just, Just, if we speak together, just out loud. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I need you. I thank you that you died for my sin And I acknowledge that I need you to forgive my sins. So, Jesus, I come now and I say sorry. I repent for those sins. And I want you to come into my life. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be in charge. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done. And I receive you now. Amen.